greetings to you all, all again. Uh, hope you guys are doing well, having a good weekend so far. Uh, but without any further ado, let's welcome uh, Patrick to our stage and uh, let's get ready for the word. Let's give him CLC welcome together. Um, I bring greetings, uh, hello from uh, Grace Covenant Church in Bloomington. Um, uh, we are, we are uh, happy uh, to, to be increasingly coming uh, in close connection with you, uh, and so I'm, I'm pleased to be here uh, to be able to bring you the word. Uh, what I would like to do today uh, is to take us to perhaps the most well-trod piece of scripture in the entire Bible. I can't think of another piece of scripture beyond the Lord's Prayer, which is what we are going to look at in just a second. I can't think of another piece of scripture that is as well known, as often repeated, as frequently recited as the Lord's Prayer. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Linguists talk about something called semantic satiation. Right? It's when you say a word so often that it loses its meaning. That's what happens with the Lord's Prayer. We say it so often that it loses its meaning for us. What I'm going to try and do today is encourage you to get back to a place where you can hear the Lord's Prayer as the gift that it is to the church given to us by our Lord. So that is, that is my agenda for us here today. Let me... Uh, read the scriptures, and then uh, I will pray for us. I'll begin at Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and I'll read down to verse 15. So, uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we have heard your word read, and we will now hear it uh, preached upon. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear hearts that are open and ready to receive it. Lord, would you use the words of my mouth to declare your gospel and your truth. Lord, I pray that whatever I speak that is out of accord with your will, I pray that you would close people's ears to that. 
but whatever is your word in your will, pray that you would open them to that. Be with us in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when we think about the Lord's Prayer, uh, we are obviously dealing generally with the topic of prayer. So, we might start out by asking ourselves, what is prayer? There are many ways that we might answer that question. Um, maybe you have uh, in your head a definition of prayer that's something like talking to God. Right? That's not bad. That, that's a good place to start. Or maybe you, you, you think about, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, this acronym that sometimes is used to, to teach people how to pray, A-C-T-S, ACTS, right? We go from adoration to confession to thanksgiving to supplication, asking for stuff. Right? So maybe that's what you think about when you think about prayer. Um, the, uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is, which is a, a teaching instrument for the church, um, several hundred years old, but that has been used fruitfully uh, for many years, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines prayer along with the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the Word of God preached in this way. Listen, listen to this. This is interesting. It says... These are the ordinary and outward means. Ordinary and outward means. Whereby Christ communicates to us, that is to say, whereby Christ gives or transfers to us the benefits of redemption. Now, there's, there's a lot of stuff packed in there. And I'm not going to unpack it all. But I do want to touch onto those two words that is used to describe the means. The word of God preached, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and prayer are ordinary and outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of our redemption. Now, you might be saying to yourself, maybe, okay, the word and the sacraments, outward, yeah, that makes sense. They come to us from outside, and they come upon us. Right? The, the Lord works on our hearts by means of those things, building up faith within us. That makes sense. They come from outside of us. But prayer, doesn't prayer come from inside of us and go outward? Right? Isn't this something that we do and that extends from us? Well, you're not wrong, but you're also not right if you said that. Because in one sense, of course, it does come from out of us. But in another sense, if we ask what prayer is, we could say that prayer is actually the response to the outward working of God's grace upon us, the building up of faith in our heart, that faith, as soon as we have it, issues forth in prayer. I'm going to say this several times in this sermon. Prayer is the grasping hand of faith. Okay? When faith is worked in our hearts, what we do is pray. What we do is pray.
look, I, I, I don't know this congregation personally. And so I, I can't target any individual person. But I know churches and I know Christians well enough that what I'm going to say is almost certainly true. Some of you are trying to live the Christian life without praying. Okay? Some of you are trying to do that. And friends, that's a bad idea. Okay? That is an unsustainable idea. Uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, I, I met another graduate student who um, found herself in the hospital at one point. The reason she was in the hospital was because her gums had started to bleed. This is not something that you want to have happen to you. And uh, she was in the hospital, and the doctors could not figure out for the life of them what was wrong. Why is this young woman, who seems otherwise to be relatively healthy, why are her gums bleeding? It turns out that because she was a poor graduate student, she could only afford one meal a day. And that meal was take out chicken tiki marsala from the Indian place on the plane. She wasn't getting any vitamin C in her diet. And she eventually got scurvy. <laughs> she got scurvy. Trying to be a Christian without prayer is like trying to cut vitamin C out of your diet. At first, it's not going to be so bad. But in the long run, this is going to be a major problem. Your gums are going to start bleeding and you'll eventually die. So, so don't cut prayer out of your diet. Now, there are others of you who are in a slightly different situation. It's not that you have decided to try and be a Christian without prayer. It's instead that what you find yourself doing is, is praying, but praying without power. Right? You, you pray, but it's as if your prayers don't go out of the room. There's no life, there's no intimacy, there's no power behind your prayers. And I specifically want to try and, and think about you today. Because I think that there are a lot of Christians in this place, and it's a dangerous place. Because the next step, when you, when you find yourself in that frustrating point, where do my prayers even matter if they're not leaving the room? Right? The next thing to go is, well, I just won't pray then. And I don't want you to get there. So I want to try and target this situation. You are praying, but your prayers have no power. It is possible that there are various reasons why this is the case. But most likely, the reason why your prayer life is powerless is because you are praying in your own power and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is most likely what is going on. And so now you say to me, okay, so how do I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit? And I have the answer for you. I can actually tell you the answer to this, and it is not all that complicated. So get ready, okay? This is, this is a good one. I'm communicating real wisdom to you in this moment. Here's how you pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. You pray the scriptures. You pray the scriptures. And the reason that I can confidently say this is that word and spirit go together. They operate with one another, never apart from one another, always with one another. 
the word and the spirit go together. And so if you're praying the word, you will pray in the power of the spirit. So how do I pray scripture? There are lots of good ways to do this. There are lots of good places to go to in the scriptures. Um, There's a small book by Don Whitman called Praying the Psalms. If you want an easy introduction to praying scripture, go read Don Whitman. It'll take you you a couple of hours probably to work your way through this. He gives you a very clear, very practical approach to praying the Psalms. 150 Psalms, right? They're great for prayer. Challenging, but also inspiring and powerful. You could could go to some of of Paul's uh, exhortations or or his eruptions of praise in his letter. Go Go to Ephesians 1, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes on, pray through that. Can give power to your prayers. But maybe there is no more obvious place to go if you want to pray with power than to go to the Lord's Prayer. It is, after all, a gift which he gave to his church. He said, pray like this. Want an ought to pray? Pray like this. The Lord gave this one to us. Uh, there is a... Uh, 17th century theologian. I'm a historian by trade, and so everything for me is, you know, in the past. Nothing great happens in the future, except the return of Christ. That's going to be great, but but all the good stuff happened in the past. There's a 17th century Dutch theologian, a man named uh, Herman Vitzius. Uh, Vitzius commented about the Lord's Prayer. I love this. He says, every word is peculiarly emphatic. Now, what he meant by that is every word of the Lord's Prayer matters. Do you want to know why we have arrived at semantic satiation with the Lord's Prayer? So that when we pray it, it doesn't even penetrate our minds, let alone our hearts. Why is that the case? I think it is because it's not that we pray it too often. We pray it too quickly. And we pray it without thinking about every word. Every word, Vitzius says, is peculiarly emphatic. And he's right. He's right about that. The Lord's Prayer comes with two warnings. And I think this helps us to think about how we need to read the prayer. Two warnings. Our Lord says first, don't be like the hypocrites, verse 7, and don't be like the Gentiles. Sorry, verse 5 and verse 7. Don't be like the Gentiles, verse 7. The problem with the hypocrites is that they are praying to impress other people. Now, this this is just utter foolishness, right? Because if what you want is coming from God, then praying in order to impress other people is just, I mean, you, you've started down the wrong road entirely. You're just not going to get what you want, okay? So this is, this is a really bad way to approach prayer, doing it in order to perform before others. If that's what you're doing, stop. 
Don't do that. That's not how you pray. Jesus says, don't do that. The second option is actually a little bit closer to the truth. The Gentiles, let's look at verse 7 here. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now the Gentiles at least recognize that God is the one who gives the stuff that they want. Right? He's the one who has those benefits and blessings. But the problem with the Gentiles is that they have turned God into a genie. You remember genie, right, from, from, uh, from Aladdin? Right? If you rub the lamp, the genie comes out and he has to give you three wishes. Doesn't matter who rubs. Right? If you remember the, the Disney animated film of, of Aladdin, it didn't matter if Aladdin rubbed the lamp, whom the genie liked, or if Jafar rubbed the lamp, whom the genie hated. Didn't matter. The genie had to obey the master of the lamp. That's not the way God works. God isn't a genie. It doesn't matter if you heap up lots of phrases. It doesn't matter if you say the right words, quote unquote. That doesn't get you what you want. Because God is not a genie. He's not a slave. He's God. So don't try to manipulate God. Don't try to impress him. You can't. Right? Instead, approach God in a different way. Not like a genie, but like a father instead. <clears throat> now, one could, I suppose give a single sermon on the entire Lord's Prayer. I imagine that that's possible. I don't think it's within my skill set. I don't actually think I could do that. Right? And in fact, today, I'm only going to talk about one word in the Lord's Prayer. Just that first word, Father. Now, I know, I know, everybody just looked up with stunned, fearful eyes, right? I can't see your expressions, but I can see your eyes. And you said, no, 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 the first word in the Lord's Prayer is not Father, it's our. No, no, no. The first word in the Lord's Prayer is Father. Right? By, by a quirk of English, the way grammar works is we have to put our before Father, but the first word in the prayer that Jesus gave is Father. The first word is Father. And so I want to talk about that first word because I want to try and model to you some of the ways that we can recover that peculiarly emphatic nature of the words of the Lord's Prayer. So let's think about Father, God as Father. Now, it, it is interesting that if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, that theme exists, God as Father. It, it, it does exist. It's there. If you go to places like Psalm 2, or if you go to uh, Hosea 11 or Exodus 3, there are places where God as Father appears in the Old Testament, and they are critical places, but it's not what you would call thick on the ground. Right? You don't run into it every time you turn to the Old Testament. But when you flip the page from the last chapter of Malachi, over into the New Testament, to the first page of Matthew, you are hit with a barrage of fatherhood imagery with relation to God. In fact, 
the first thing that we learn about Jesus in Matthew 1.1 is that he is the son of David and of Abraham. Sonship is the first thing that's on order in the book of Matthew. If you go down a little bit further to Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21, you find out a little bit more about the sonship of Jesus. Turns out he is the son of Mary, conceived by by the Holy Spirit. We learn another thing about the sonship of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2. And that is that he is not, underlined, he is not the son of Joseph. He is nowhere called the son of Joseph. Instead, whenever Joseph is mentioned in relationship to Jesus, Jesus is the child, not the son, the child. And the reason, of course, why this happens is because Matthew is teaching us to expect that Jesus is the Son of God. And so dramatically, in chapter 3, when Jesus goes into the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, as he comes up out of the water, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him, and a voice declares from the heavens, what? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we've met Jesus now as son. Chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the devil twice hurls this back in his face. He says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Throw yourself down off this building and let the angels catch you, if you are the son of God. The first four chapters of Matthew then prepare us to know Jesus as the Son of God. And so it comes as something of a surprise in chapter 5, in Jesus' first great teaching in the book of Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It comes as something of a surprise, beginning in chapter 5, that Jesus begins to talk not just about himself as the Son of God, but about his disciples as the sons of God as well. If you you take a look at verse 9 in chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What did the audience think at this moment? Is Jesus confused? What would early readers of Matthew have thought at this moment? What does he mean? Isn't he the son of God? Why is he calling disciples? sons of God. And then in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's unexpected. And it goes on and it actually picks up the pace towards the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 so that by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 9, and the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we may still be confused about why we are calling God Father but we're maybe not surprised anymore by it. Well, here's my question. And I think this is a question that the first few chapters of Matthew are driving us to ask. 
It is this. Why do we call the Father of our Lord our Father? Why do we get to do that? By what right can we claim to address God as our Father? I think there are three ways that we can answer that question. There are three ways in the New Testament in particular that God is described as Father. I'll unpack those briefly for you as we continue our excavation of this word Father. The first way that God is Father is by what I'm going to call universal creation. God created everything. Right? Universal creation. God created everything. And in particular, as the crown of his creation, he created human beings. Human beings are created in his image. And so we sometimes see in Scripture that that image-bearing creation is described in terms of being the offspring of God. So if we go, for example, to Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens, and, and he, he is brought up to Mars Hill, this, this great place for, for intellectual dialogue and philosophical exchange. Poets and philosophers gather there, and Paul, who's preaching something new, teaching a different thing than they have heard before, is brought before the assembly. And they say, tell us what you have to say. And in a fascinating sermon, Paul begins to declare the gospel to them. And he says, at one point, he says, referring to God, in him we move, we live and move and have our being, as some of your own philosophers, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his children. And God, then, is the father of all human beings. In this sense of being creator, like the potter to the clay, and this is not insignificant, of course. Right? This, is, this is a solid foundation upon which we can build a sense of human value. All human beings, not just the ones we like, not just the ones who are like us, but all human beings have value because they stand in relationship to God. And therefore, we treat them as image bearers. It's a significant doctrine, but I don't think it's really what is in view in the Lord's Prayer. Instead, what the Lord's Prayer is focusing on is the fatherhood of God towards those who are in Christ, who look to him with that prayerful hand of faith, who look to him with that prayerful hand of faith who lay hold of his son, and who in his son find their identity as sons and daughters. Which brings us to the other two ways in which scripture speaks about the fatherhood of God. The first of these is what I'm going to call, I'm going to call this like recreator, right? Recreator, we could also maybe speak of regenerator. I would say rebirther, but that just sounds very strange, so I'm not going to use that, right? Recreator, regenerator, rebirther, okay? Um, something like that. Here we might think about the way that God is the one who brings new life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
What does a dead man do? Nothing. He lays there dead. The Spirit of God comes upon him and breathes new life into those dead bones, raising him up to newness of life. That's a new birth. That is a new birth. Think about the way that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born again. New birth has to happen in your life. And that new birth is new birth in the Son. John chapter 1 says, all of those who receive that eternal word of God made flesh, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. So what does it mean to be recreated? What does it mean to be reborn? Paul likes to talk about it in terms of, of a transfer, right? He, he likes to say things like, um, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Right? That's, that's sort of the way that Paul often speaks about it. Peter will speak about it in terms of partaking of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4, partaking of the divine nature. Think about, think about Peter Parker. Right? Peter Parker is, he's bitten by, I don't know, if radioactive spider, some spider with some sort of something in him, right? He's bitten by this radioactive spider, and he is no longer a man. He's Spider-Man, right? He's become something different, right? Or Steve Rogers, right? He, the, the super soldier serum is transfused into his body. He's no longer Steve Rogers. He's Captain America now, right? Something dramatic and transformative has occurred. They, are, they have partaken now of a different nature. That's a little bit like what happens when we are recreated, regenerated, reborn in the Son of God. We become partakers of the divine nature. Things have fundamentally changed because we've been united to the Son. Right now, because we have been united to the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul can even talk about us as being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right in the present tense, right, right now, not just in sort of some figurative imaginary sense, but spiritually, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places places. We are joined to, we are grafted on to Christ by the Holy Spirit. One who stirs up faith within our hearts as we hear the word of God preached, as we receive the sacraments, and as we respond with the praying hand of faith. Brothers and sisters, that praying hand of faith speaks the infant's first word. It says, Father. Right? It says, Father. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means fundamentally at the most basic level to have faith. It means to cry out, Father. This is gracious, and we do not deserve it. Recreation in Christ is by grace alone, but it doesn't come alone. That recreation is accompanied by a whole suite of benefits of redemption in Christ. Among those benefits is adoption, and adoption is the third way that the scriptures speak about the fatherhood of God. We have been adopted. We have been brought into a new family as sons and daughters, yes, but, but there actually is a sort of gender language here that the scripture uses, right? As sons, because sons are the ones who receive inheritance in the culture. As sons in the son. We are sons in the son with all the privileges of being part of his Family. Listen to Romans chapter 8, 14 and 15. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, with that praying hand of faith. There's the Lord's Prayer. Abba, Father. That's where the Lord's Prayer begins. And those privileges, the privileges of being part of the adopted family of God, of being an heir with Christ, an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, those privileges cannot be taken away from us. They can't be diminished. They can't be interrupted. Not by any created being. Why? Because we are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we are in the Father's beloved Son, that one to whom he said, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that means when he looks at you and when he sees you, he sees his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Would the Father ever reject the Son? Would he ever say, I don't want anything to do with you? Would he ever abandon the Son? No. No, he doesn't. He never leaves the Son. And so, brothers and sisters, that means that he will never leave you either. He will never leave you. He will never stop loving you, brothers and sisters. The face of God is turned toward you in love. His face is turned toward you in love. And he doesn't stop loving you. That is what it means for you to pray, Our Father. Why does the Lord's Prayer start here? Why does the Lord's Prayer start with Father? Why Father first? Because it's identity first, right? The Lord's Prayer is establishing identity. 
It is establishing the identity of God and our relationship to him. And so our identity, because he's the one out of whose identity our identity flows. We know who we are because we know who he is. And if we know that he is our father, then we know that we are his sons and his daughters. Who we are determines how we act. We begin with the knowledge that we are already part of the family. Then we know how to behave. Uh, I remember when I was um, in my early 20s, I started losing my hair uh, at that point. And um, my, my father had the same uh, affliction uh, that, that he suffered. And, um, so I can remember uh, going to my hometown, a small hometown, just a about a thousand people, and um, uh, people would say to him, oh, he's definitely your son. Right? He's definitely your son. How did they know that? Was it because I dressed like him? Right? Was it because I affected the mannerisms of my father? No. They knew it because he was my father. You behave like your parents. You take on their personality. You get their haircuts. It's just the way that things work. Look, there's a lot more to the Lord's Prayer. Some of it is very challenging. And I think, I think especially the second half of the Lord's Prayer is particularly challenging to wrestle through. But brothers and sisters, if you begin with the orienting knowledge of the fatherhood of God and his love towards you in Christ, and your childhood towards God, your Father. If you begin with that orienting knowledge, the entire rest of the Lord's Prayer will fall into order for you. It will make it much easier to understand what is going on in the rest of the prayer. So these opening words, and indeed the entire Lord's Prayer, I think is a sort of, it's a compass, right? I used the word orienting just a moment ago. It's a compass for God's people to realign themselves in proper relationship to him, to remember that we are his children and he is our father. We, we make a mistake. We, we are in error when we simply repeat these words rotely without thinking about them, without bringing them into our hearts. When we do that, what we are saying is that it's the vocalized words that matter. We're heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. It's like rubbing the genie's lamp. We think that we get a God who is a slave who, do all, who will do our bidding just because we put the right things in the right order, going through the motions, performing the rites and rituals. Don't do that. That's not how God works. That's not who he is. That's not what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer is the first words of the child of God. The child who, who reaches out in the middle of the night in fear and calls for his mommy or his daddy. Right? That's what the Lord's prayer is. It's groping with faith. Abba, Father. So, all of you, uh, all of you who are uh, who labor and are heavy laden, you who are tired and weary, uh, 
you don't know what to do with yourself, you find yourself empty without power in your prayers, come to the Son. And in the Son, find your loving Father. Every word of the Lord's Prayer, as Rizia said, is peculiarly emphatic, and it repays your careful, slow, and thoughtful meditation. The covenant life, church, here we are still at the beginning of a new year. Uh, we're, we're still in January. Um, and so I want, to, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, I want to charge you uh, in this year to come to spend time taking account of how you might press forward towards maturity and growth in Christ this year. If you want to see life, if you want to see intimacy, if you want to see power in your prayers, then what you want is the Spirit of God. The Word and the Spirit work together. If you want to see Covenant Life Church grow as a place where people are maturing in their faith, where your brothers and sisters are coming to know Christ better, then what you want is the Word. And Word and Spirit go together. If you want to see those who are outside coming in, if you want to see people drawn to Christ, then what you want is the Word and the Spirit because Word and Spirit go together and they go together in power. So drench your prayer life in the words of Scripture, brothers and sisters. Memorize it, recite it, bring it within yourself. Pray through Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to begin with the Lord's Prayer. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, let's spend some time in quiet prayers for uh, invite Patrick back up uh, here and uh, close for us and we'll actually be ending in Lord's Prayer uh, afterwards as well and uh, how fitting uh, after hearing uh, the sermon uh, but before we do that uh, I just want to uh, give us some time to process and apply uh, right now um, we appreciated the, the word and it really flows from that identification, uh, that frame of who God is and who we are in Him. Uh, and from there on, my mind went to uh, Luke 15, the, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, one of the many places uh, in the scriptures uh, depicting God as our Father. and. Uh, I think that particular parable uh, describes for us what kind of father or the heart of God as a father. And if you are familiar with the parable, um, you know, we see the father um, waiting and waiting, waiting for his lost son to come back. And we know that because he spots the sun coming back from the horizon, meaning that he's been waiting, watching. Uh, and, and it's astounding what happens, what transpires after that. He was probably wearing uh, a long robe uh, in that culture, not suitable for anybody to run. Um, but it says he 
ran, meaning he, he girded up the, the clothes, the skirt-like clothes, looking, you know, foolish, if, if I can say that. So he can run to the, the son that's coming back. The father's heart. Um, I wanted to share that because as we pray right now, uh, again, in response to the word, um, I'm sure many of us are coming from different places and, um, and maybe some of us feel like you've been far away. Some of us, you, know, you have been walking with God, but maybe this particular past week, it's been rough for you. So you feel like you're coming to this service um, not prepared, um, whatever that means, right? Um, to encounter God or receive His mercy. But again, in light of what we heard and in the parable, God is you know, waiting for us. He is running towards us right now. And all we have to do is receive His grace and rest in Him and just cry like an infant baby saying, Abba. So I just want to encourage us to do that uh, right now. Uh, from there on, uh, you can just take this time to um, do whatever, um, to um, just converse with them in, in your ways, um, just to enjoy him as, our, as your father who is running after you. And, uh, just, we'll do that for a few moments, and then uh, Patrick will come up and uh, close for us. Let's pray together with our Father. you that when there was no way for us to come close to you, that you made a way by coming close to us. You sent your son. You sent your son to suffer and to die for our sake. And because he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, because he sits at your right hand, even now, interceding for us, every one of us who look to him in faith 
are united to him and are seated with him in your throne in the heavenly places. God, I pray that in this week ahead of us, you would give us words to cry out to you as Father. Help us, your children, to orient our life towards that word. To seek first your kingdom and your righteousness so that all of these other things that we are worried about They might be taken care of. Would you know how to clothe the grass of the field? You know how many heads, how many hairs are on our head. You know every time a sparrow falls. You know us, and you know what we need. Give us hearts of great faith to trust in you. Amen. Well, we'll actually can remain standing and we'll actually close in the Lord's Prayer. How, how fitting is that? Uh, but like Patrick encouraged us, uh, let's um, pray through the words of Scripture. And uh, again, the Spirit works through that and how marvelous that is to us. So let's close in the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated.